The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. I will faithfully give them their recompense, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them. This is the word of the Lord. I remind you again today that we've been dealing with this book of Isaiah three Sundays. The first 39 chapters were written by a prophet who lived in the 8th century, the latter part of the 700s before the Common Era. The northern tribes, 10 of them, have been destroyed by the Assyrians, so raped, plundered, intermarried, cities burned that they cease to exist. We still talk about the ten lost tribes of Israel. Only two southern tribes remained, and together they were called Judah. It is in Judah that Isaiah wrote and preached, encouraging the kings to do what was right. In the sixth chapter, he said, In the year that King Uzziah died, I went into the temple, and there I saw the Lord, holy, mighty, the seraphim, singing of him, Holy, 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 His whole train filled the sanctuary. I fell down on my knees, for I was a man unclean, a man of unclean lips. And the seraphim flew to the altar, brought a hot coal, and touched it to my lips, and said, Be clean. And I heard a voice of the Lord saying, And who shall go for me? Who will speak for me? And I said, Here am I, Lord, send me. That prophet produced for us 39 chapters And then there was a silence of more than 150 years. There was a momentary attempt at reform at the time of Isaiah, but it didn't last long. And soon the kings were more unjust than they had ever been before. The people taking advantage of the poor, the impoverished, the marginalized, and the dreaded enemy came. Not from Assyria this time, from Babylon, modern-day Iraq. The Babylonians came. They looted the magnificent temple that stood atop Mount Moriah. They looted the king's palace that had belonged to the sons of David, great and grandsons of David. They set fire to both of those beautiful buildings, burned the gates so that the city was defenseless. And if not defenseless enough, they tumbled down the stones around the walled portion of the city. The last vision the people had was of fire, of smoke, of devastation as they were forced marched all the way to Babylon. But 150 years later, a new voice, the tenor will voice that scripture tonight when we come at 5 o'clock for Messiah. Comfort, comfort ye my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Fifty years before a stronger power yet came from farther east, think modern-day Iran, the Persians. The Persians overran modern-day Iraqis, the Babylonians, and told the Jews they could go home. But the Jews who were still living, who had once seen the homeland, were 
ten years old the last time they saw the city. It was burning. It was devastated. It was destroyed. Most did not go home. They stayed on now, believing the Persians would deal more fairly with them. They stayed in Babylon. They stayed in Persia. They produced great volumes of work called the Babylonian Talmud, the Persian Talmud. Not many went home, but those who did found it in horrible condition. After 50 years, the Canaanites had reasserted themselves. They held all the best watering holes, all the best wheat fields, all the best vineyards. They had not rebuilt the gates of the city. They had not rebuilt the walls. Jerusalem was vulnerable to any and every passing enemy. Into that devastation, we have a third writer. Scholars believe a disciple of the second Isaiah. But too late for that one to be the writer. This is another, another who writes these powerful words today. I've underlined four things that I think are very important. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. He has sent me to preach good news to you. If you want an idea about how really radical these thoughts are, remember that when Jesus stood in the synagogue in his hometown and read these words or recited them from memory, there were some who wanted to kill him, who wanted to throw him off the side of the hill. Because the oppressed want to hear these good words. The poor want to hear these good words. The marginalized want to hear. But those who have things going well for them don't want to hear. Not about new things. Not about radical new things. And they wanted to throw him off the side of the hill. So, hear these words. The Spirit of the Lord God. When we have Lord God right together, I remind you that these are two different Hebrew words. The word Lord translates the name given to Moses at the burning bush, a name the Jews had never had before. When Moses was told by God, I want you to go back to Egypt, we're going to face down Pharaoh, he begged for a new name, one that nobody else knew. And God said, okay, I am Eye Asher Eye, shortened with the first four letters of those words to Yahweh, most often translated, I am who I am. Moses went back to Egypt. God visited plague upon plague upon the Egyptians. This one is the one described in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, as having such a strong breath that he could drive back chaos and bring order, that he could drive back darkness and bring light, that this powerful spirit of the Lord, when breathed out of the nostrils of God, could part the waters for the Israelites to go home, leaving Egypt. That one has come to me, this writer says, and told me to bring you good news. Good news. I got a call just after Christmas, a long time ago, when I was an associate pastor in Houston. It was 34 years ago, Bishop Paul Galloway, head my district superintendent, called me and say, you're going to move next Thursday to Beaumont, Texas. You will be the new pastor of Trinity United Methodist Church. The bishop wants you to know a few things about that church. It's a very young suburban church. They grew very quickly, up to 2,500 members. They've now shrunk back to 2,100 members. They bought 10 acres of land, just one block off Interstate 10, a very beautiful piece of property. But... They built their buildings and decided they couldn't pay for them. Not only could they not pay for them, they couldn't even pay the utility bills on them. They're more than $25,000 behind on the gas and electric bills. They have no money. 
the bishop thinks this is a wonderful opportunity for you. You will move next Thursday to Trinity Church. I heard that my immediate predecessor had gone there three years before to try to right all those wrongs, and his idea of the way to do that was to talk to them every Sunday about money, about how cheap they were. Give more money, give more money. So all the prospects ran out the back door. Nobody was joining the church. People don't want to join something that's dying. They want to join something that's going, something that's moving. And so I resolved before I preached that first Sunday that as long as God left me at Trinity Church Beaumont, I would end every sermon with these words, and that is the good news as I understand it. And for seven years, I finished every sermon with those words, and all week when I was working on a new sermon, I knew I was going to have to come to that sentence, so I was very clear about having good news. And that is the good news as I understand it. There are churches that beat up on the people who go to them. I'm always amazed how many people go to churches where the preacher just beats up on the people week after week after week. We have to talk about sin sometime. The Bible talks about it quite often. We have to talk about money occasionally. The Bible talks a lot about it. But every sermon ought to end with good news. With good news. The Lord God, Spirit has anointed me to preach to you good news, this writer says. Ashley Johnson has written about uh, calling her mother and father uh, one Sunday afternoon. She knew that her little nephew, their grandson, 21 months old, had uh, gone to church and Sunday school with them that morning. And she called to see how everything had gone. And the granddaddy said, Alex learned his first verse of scripture today. And Ashley said, now, come on, Dad. I know he's my nephew and he's your grandson, but at 21 months, he didn't learn any scripture this morning. And he said, he did. Alex, come close to the phone where Aunt Ashley can hear you. Come closer, come closer. And then he said, tell Aunt Ashley what the heavenly chorus said to the shepherds on Christmas Eve night. Only silence. Ashley said, I knew, I knew you were putting... I said, wait a second, he may need a little help here. So the grandfather said to him, now, Alex, think about it. In Sunday school this morning, they were telling you about the heavenly host of angels that sang to the shepherds. What did the angels say? Silence. He said, let's try once more. The angels of God came to sing to the shepherds. And they said to the shepherds, be not. And this little boy said, foid. <laughs> and he said, that's it. Ashley wrote, you know what? That wouldn't be a bad first verse to learn. All through the Bible, when God is starting to confront folks, they get frightened. They get afraid. And the voice of God always comes to say, be not be not afraid. I've come to bring you good news. I've come to bring you good news. Let's go to number two. In verse three, three times this author writes, instead of one thing, something else. And it's all about mourning, people who mourn. These folks who've come home and have found things even worse than they imagined, who are mourning, who are grieving. 
You know, we grieve a lot of different things. Twenty-five years ago, the Reverend Gordon Spencer brought to our church one weekend Dr. Ann Kaiser Starnes. He had known Ann when she was a teenager in his MYF group out at Weatherford, Oklahoma. She had gone on to big, important things. Ann was graduated with honors from our Oklahoma City University, Dr. Coral's alma mater. Then she went to Duke, Dr. Coral's alma mater, graduated with honors, Master of Divinity degree, took a student campus minister's job, University of Michigan. These students had more questions than she had answers, more problems than she had solutions. So she kept taking another course and another course and another course until she had her Ph.D. And it ended up teaching at Loyola University, Baltimore, Maryland. Gordon got her to come to Boston Avenue for that Friday, Saturday. She was wonderful. I still remember her saying that when she grew up in Weatherford, Oklahoma, she thought all the happy people had good things happening to them. And the folks who walked around with a scowl on their face, looking a little teary-eyed, must have terrible things happening to them. But she said, I'm much older and wiser now. I can tell you that every person you meet today has something he or she could celebrate. And every person you meet today has something he or she is grieving. Everybody has a hurt. Everybody has a frustration. Everybody has a disappointment. I tell you, I've come to give you good news. Instead of ashes, remember the old grieving customs, scoop up old ashes, not hot ones, just cold old ashes and sprinkle them on your head so everybody knew you're just feeling lower than dirt and put garlands around their necks. At 8.30 this morning, Caroline Britt was here, stayed for Sunday school. Caroline and the late Dr. Clarence Britt have spent a fair amount of time in, in Hawaii over the years, and they liked very much our Barton Clinton Gordy series here at Boston Avenue. So they decided to endow such a preaching, teaching series at the First Methodist Church in Honolulu. And so the Brit series was begun. Not only do they bring to the islands someone whom they think would be good for the congregation to hear, but they actually scholarship Methodist preachers, and that district out there has a number of islands, including all the way to Midway and Guam. They fly them into Honolulu for that series. They asked me one year to be the speaker. I was to speak four times. The first time I was to speak, worship service was very familiar to me. Then I was introduced, and just as I stood up, Dr. Britt stood up in the congregation and came forward and put a beautiful lay around my neck. Wow. I'd had one at the airport, but it wasn't as pretty as this one. It was beautiful. I could smell the flowers. They were fresh, wonderful. The second presentation, they introduced me. Mrs. Britt stood up, came forward, put this beautiful layer around my neck, more beautiful than the first. And the third time I was introduced, they came with a third one. And the fourth time, a fourth one. Some of them had not only flowers, but they had beautiful nuts around and shells. And so they were out of this world, beautiful. What an encouragement to have two people I admired and appreciated so very much want me just before I preached to know I was appreciated. I was appreciated. Not ashes on your head, but garlands around your neck. Eric Feldman wrote that he had had an accident some years ago that really caused deep pain in his hip. 
But the doctor said nothing needed to be done right away, so he didn't do anything about it, going back to work, rest when he could. But gradually it got worse and worse. And finally it was just bone rubbing on bone, and he decided with his orthopedic surgeon's uh, insistence, got to have that replaced. And he had the surgery. He said only six hours after he got to his room, here came a big muscular guy saying, uh, we've got to get you up now. I said, wait a second. I just had my hip replaced. He said, I understand. Catch hold of my hands. And he said he grasped the lower part of my arms and pulled me up on my feet. I could feel pain from the incision. But I waited for that deep pain in the socket. And it was gone. It was gone. And when I got to the point I could take a few more steps, I kept anticipating that pain deep in the joint. It was no longer there. And all I could ask myself was, why did you wait five years? Why did you put up with five years of pain when it was not necessary to go through that? He said, in so many relationships of people I know, in organizations, in families, in classrooms, he's a professor, there are so many deep hurts and pains that if only they could be excised, people could quit grieving and could enjoy a garland, a garland. Number three, instead of a faint spirit, a mantle of praise. You remember when Elijah placed his mantle on Elisha? That the power passed, if you would, the, the stole moved from one to the other. And instead of a weak, faint spirit, a mantle of praise. How much more we all love to be praised than to be criticized or put down. Marianne O'Rourke said that for Christmas she wanted to go to a special restaurant in New York City. She invited some good friends to go with her and they said they would love to. She got there just a little bit early to be sure everything was in order and that the table had, in fact, been reserved for them. And she said, I was shown to the table, and I was looking eagerly for my friends to enter. When suddenly a young couple were ushered over to the table right next to mine, and as the maitre d' was seating the young woman, she said, I don't like this table. You must not think we're very important to give us this table. He assured them that they were important and handed them a menu. And this young couple kept saying, well, they don't have what they used to have. This menu is not as good as it used to be. I bet the food's not as good as it used to be either. And they quarreled and fussed and quarreled and fussed until finally one of them summoned the maitre d' and said, we cannot sit at this table. This is the worst table in this restaurant. Surely there must be a better table. And he moved them. And she said, only a few moments had passed now. I was still looking eagerly for my friends when the maitre d' came with another couple for that table. She was walking with a cane, holding on to the arm of the man with her. And when they got to the table, the woman said, Wow, what a wonderful table. You must think we're important. And he said, Oh, but you are, madam. Both of you are important. And she said, Well, you have certainly warmed the heart of this 91-year-old. And he's older than I am, she said. And they sat down and... Marianne says, as I waited just a few more moments for my friends, I heard her say to him, 
Wow, look at the menu. Look at all these things. How are we ever going to make a choice? And he said, well, you know, it's sort of like the museum this afternoon. Some things were even better than others. We had to sort of choose the very best ones. She said it was amazing. Just as my friends arrived, I heard that first couple still complaining and saying, I don't think we'll ever come here again. We've not been treated properly. And Marianne said, a faint spirit, a weak spirit, or a mantle of praise. Number four. Ah, this is where I got the title for today's sermon. I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. And then he goes back to these to whom God wants good news spoken and says, They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. I told you that a few years ago, our Oklahoma Conference for Community and Justice was trying to tell our story to greater numbers of people. And we asked David Littlefield and his agency if they would be willing to give us their expertise in designing a new campaign. And they decided on a campaign called Join Our Hate Group. Uh, you may have seen television commercials. The Tulsa World was wonderful. Gave us a whole page. Join Our Hate Group. We hate bigotry. We hate racism. We hate injustice. We went on and on with those things that we felt God hated, and therefore we should hate also. But God, through this great prophet, later for us Gentiles, through his son Jesus Christ, who would recite these words at the synagogue in, in, uh, in Nazareth, that the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, and that those who hear will be the Lord's own planting they shall become oaks of righteousness. Trees that were seen to have great strength. Great strength to stand tall with dignity. To do the things that God loves, not the things that God hates. Uh, Sue Monk Kidd, in her book she published a year and a half ago called First Light, uh, reminds us what the word compassion really means. I had Latin in college, so I knew this. But compassion begins, as a number of our English words do that have come from Latin, with the C-O-M, which in Latin is C-U-M, and it means with. And passionare has to do not with just feeling kindly towards somebody. It has to do with suffering. So to be compassionate is to suffer with. To suffer with. To understand as best one can, what it means to be poor, weak, sick, discouraged, helpless, and to be instruments for what God loves rather than what God hates. She recites a passage from Dr. Elie Wiesel's book, Night. That book has haunted me for years. You know that Gail and I went to Majdanek in Poland. It is reputed to be the best preserved of all the Holocaust camps. We had a private guide. We saw only one other couple in Majdanek in a period of five hours. It was just the guide and the two of us walking us around, showing us virtually every square foot of the place. 
we took one day off and then we went to Auschwitz. I, I still couldn't believe we were there, walking under that horrible sign, Arbeit macht frei. If you work hard, it'll make you free. Didn't make them free, of course. The Jews were gassed and burned. Our guide walked us through for some four hours and we swallowed a little bit of soup and went immediately to Birkenau and he walked us through Birkenau camp made famous by Schindler's List now the Judenrampe where the train actually pulled into the middle of the camp and people were sent left and right left and right in one scene in night Elie Wiesel describes how the allied forces were getting closer and closer and the Nazis finally saw that they were not going to have time to gas and burn all the Jews. So they were trying to move them ahead of the Allied forces so that others would not see these horrible things they had done. Elie Wiesel and his fellow prisoners were wakened one morning before daylight and marched out into the courtyard where they were told they would wait until their train came to take them to a camp farther north and east. It was snowing. They'd had nothing to eat the day before. Nothing. And they were to stand there in the courtyard in formation until the train came. I stood in that courtyard and tried to imagine what that would be like with these hundreds of men in rags standing in the snow waiting for a train that did not come. Before daylight, after dark, they were still standing. They had nothing to eat, nothing to drink. And suddenly one man noticed that the fellow in front of him had a little pile of snow that had collected on each of his shoulders. And he took his spoon out of his pocket. Don't lose your spoon. There might be a little bit of gruel. There might be a spoonful of soup. Hold on to your spoon. And he scooped up the snow off the shoulder of the man in front of it, put it in his mouth, put his spoon back in his pocket. But another had seen it. He looked around to see if any guards were noticing who would not approve of this behavior. And when he saw none, he took his spoon out and took snow from the shoulder of the man in front of him, put it in his mouth. And one man after the other saw and scooped the snow off the man's shoulder in front of him and put it in his mouth. And as night fell and the train had not come, Elie Wiesel said, We were together. We were together. All we need to be now, oaks of righteousness, God's own planting.